This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The American Civil War began in 1861 and ended in 1865, as everyone listening to this show already knows. But to understand it fully, we need to look at it in a much longer perspective. Our guest today, Orville Vernon Burton, has written The Age of Lincoln that explores the Civil War in the context of the entire 19th century. It's a new conceptualization that will change the way you think about the Civil War. Join us for a conversation with Vernon Burton on Civil War Talk Radio. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Well, welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm not sure which music is playing today. Things are a little uh, confused as I got to the phone later than usual. But this is Civil War Talk Radio. And I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a beautiful February afternoon, a little bit chilly, but bright and sunny. Uh, although I am sitting here in the university's chair and talking on the university's phone, I'm not speaking for the university. I legally disclaim uh, liability for things they do, and I'm sure they feel the same way about me, so... Uh, the same will be true of our guest. We're all speaking on our own hook here. It's uh, the first show since Abraham Lincoln's 200th birthday on February 12th, and the, uh, uh, the, the first show in which the reality of the new economy has really set in upon everyone. Uh, there, there is a memo I'm looking at here coming down from academic affairs pointing out that no more state funds are to be spent on refreshments at committee meetings, no more cookies or Diet Coke or anything uh, to be brought into committee meetings unless you bring them yourself. Uh, we're going to try to get out of the $15 million uh, deficit for this year, one chocolate chip cookie at a time. Uh, it may take a while at this rate, but the the, the financial crisis in which the, the world uh, finds itself has certainly filtered down to North Carolina and to East Carolina University here. Uh, it, has, uh, it has not stopped every activity on campus. Certainly the classes go on, the teaching continues. Research continues as best we can. Uh, in my role as acting chair, I now have to scrutinize all of my colleagues' travel requests and turn down some of them uh, if they are not immediately uh, associated with uh, important research activities. It's a frustrating thing. Uh, uh, students don't realize, and I'm afraid legislators don't realize, that professors uh, spend essentially equal amounts of time on research and teaching at, at a research university. Uh, we're not glorified high school teachers whose who's, uh, 
full job is educating the young. Ours is educating the young and generating new knowledge. But to the legislators, a trip uh, to some distant land to visit the archive or the battlefield or the historic home or whatever it is we're going to do, that's... Um, that doesn't get kids taught in the classroom, so that comes out of the budget first. And the next thing you know, uh, the university becomes a giant community college in which we do educate the young but cease to fill our role as scholars. It's, it's a hard sell to convince legislators we need to travel sometimes. And, Jerry, it also, I think, makes a huge difference in how we teach if we aren't able to be engaged in research and bring that excitement forward. It, it, it does. There's the, the voice of our guest, Vernon Burton, uh, coming forth. Um, Vernon, let me give you a proper introduction, uh, has written the book The Age of Lincoln. Uh, he is the uh, university distinguished teacher scholar at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, uh, has written uh, numerous books and uh, directs the Institute for Computing in Humanities, Arts, and Social Science at the University of Illinois. And, uh, Vernon, I've got lots and lots to ask you about this book. I'm going to hold off for just a second. Uh, let me take care of one more housekeeping chore here, uh, which is to remind uh, listeners that if you want to uh, get a, a look at, the, uh, at me in person, uh, come see the Did Lincoln Own Slaves uh, Lincoln Bicentennial Tour. Uh, last uh, On Lincoln's birthday, I had the chance to be in uh, California at the University of Redlands for the uh, 77th Watchhorn Lincoln Lecture. I'll next be in uh, Michigan giving the uh, Bicknell Lecture at the Gross Point Historical Society on March 18th, and then the Austin Civil War Roundtable on March 19th. I think those dates are right. They're within a day or so. Uh, and then in April, attending the uh, seminar uh, Lincoln in the Civil War era at Harvard University on the last weekend of April, uh, May, and then I've now oh, the calendar's gone down. Some days in May will be in uh, Leesburg, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, and uh, eventually in October back to Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Uh, I'm trying to curtail any new engagements as the job of acting chair continues to become more and more interesting and uh, challenging and indeed uh, bizarre at times. This past week here on campus, we've, we've had some contentious issues within the department, and uh, the, the honeymoon is over. I've been acting chair for 16 months, and the first 15 and a half were smooth sailing, but uh, things got a little choppy this week. Uh, I was literally running down the hall to get back to the phone to, to join you listeners today at, right at 3 o'clock Eastern Time, and I think I was 30 seconds late because there were things that had to be tended to in the day job, but they're behind us now. So we move on to our subject today, the age of Lincoln. Um, Vernon, thank you very much for, for joining me today, and uh, I, I, I have written all over my copy of your book here. Um, with questions, but let me start by ask, asking you a little bit, uh, uh, maybe an introductory question or two. We got to meet, uh, I think it was at Gettysburg at the book signing table last November, um, but didn't get to exchange too many personal details. What did what got you into the Lincoln world or the Civil War world originally? Well, I, uh, Jerry, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I learned so much from you, 
and have over the years, uh, even though we really didn't know each other. My actual degree, Ph.D. at Princeton, was on Civil War Reconstruction. Uh, I worked with Jim McPherson and did my Ph.D. with him, so I've always been interested. And Ironically, when people ask me my interest in Lincoln, uh, as a boy, I had two heroes. Uh, we had a bookmobile in my hometown of 96, South Carolina, and yes, that's the name of the town. And Where I now live, I've actually retired at the University of Illinois, and I'm now the Burroughs uh, uh, Distinguished Professor of Southern History and Culture at uh, Coastal Carolina University and uh, moved back to my hometown in 96. But when I was a boy, we had a bookmobile that came every two weeks. By the time I was 12, I'd read every book in there. And I think uh, reading those books, I had two heroes, Abraham Lincoln and, of all people, Jesse James. I think the commonality was that they both loved their mother, as I did, and <laughs> secondly, that somehow I thought they did good things for poor people. However, uh, the more I learned about Jesse James, the, the less enchanted I became and realized he was just a rebel who refused to quit fighting the war, did very little good for folks. Whereas the more I've read, uh, studied Abraham Lincoln the rest of my life, it's almost a hobby as well as an avocation, the more I came to not only appreciate him, I mean, we all have our demons, our flaws, and certainly Abraham Lincoln did, but how he dealt with those demons, I think, in fact, is almost heroic in itself, and it made him, I think, a greater leader, a more compassionate man. And, uh, you know, usually the more you get to know someone or learn about them, the less esteem you hold them in. In my case, I not only come, came to appreciate Lincoln more, as Jesse James um, sort of went on the skits with me, but I actually think I have come to love Lincoln, and I don't use that that word lightly, but I think he was such a, a great president and a great human being and worthy of our study. So much to learn from him. That, that's a really interesting comment. I, I had not come a particularly studied Lincoln until I was in graduate school uh, with, with David Donald and working for him and studying Lincoln. I had the same experience. He was Lincoln was the first historical figure I ever studied where the more you learned about him, uh, the, the, the only one for whom I didn't have the experience of, of the more you learned, the less you uh, perhaps admired. You, you, you came to see the flaws. You came to recognize the, the hypocrisies or the frailties or whatever. Not that Lincoln was without flaws, but but I had that same experience. The one figure that the more I studied, the more I came to appreciate and admire. And become fascinated with He's so human. Yes. I think that all of us who, who studied Lincoln in some ways find an identity with him. You speak of David Donald, one of my the truly great historians and one of my you know, academic heroes uh, in many ways who actually did his degree at the University of Illinois under James G. Randall. So you have a direct connection there yourself. That's right. Uh, with with Lincoln. And I can see it, you know, as uh, the little engine that could, the hard working, that's, that's David Donald, and perhaps so much of my own self centering religion, religion in the age of Lincoln and certainly identifying Lincoln as a southerner. You see it. But and although even those who perhaps don't like Lincoln, there's quite a number, I think, that there's a tendency for us to read both our better angels, as Lincoln would have it, into him for ourselves, and maybe also project some of our worst fears and fantasies by some uh, into Lincoln as well. But that does happen. Sort of greater, I think, than just historical character, of course. Not just in mythology, but what America means and who we are, particularly when you add in the whole dimension of, of race. He, he really is a, a lightning rod for all those you know, say aspirations and, and some for some people, negative uh, views. Well, let me ask you about this book. One of the first things that 
uh, struck me about it uh, is that the age of Lincoln, as defined by what you're covering here, is essentially the whole span of the 19th century, and that's not uh, not a surprising thing to anyone, uh, for example, who teaches the era. If you teach a Civil War era course, most people will start it. Uh, maybe the 1840s or 1820s. I, I usually start in 1619 and uh, work my way up to Fort Sumter in a couple, three, four, five weeks maybe. And I think you're right to do that with the introduction of uh, of both race, that is Africans being brought to Jamestown, and I think essentially uh, the beginning of representative government with the House of Burgess and, and what a meaningful vote is and who, who is representing people in what becomes, you know, a democracy. So I think 1619 would make a great time frame to begin the, what I call the age of Lincoln. You know, that might be a good uh, book topic. Uh, uh, year, books with years for the title often do well. And, and uh, 1619, the irony of, of self-government and slavery being introduced simultaneously. And, and with uh, gender and race, uh, such big hot topics, of course, there's somewhat of a mythology, but the idea of the hundred, quote, Mary Virgins, as one uh, scholar from the 1920s or 30s put it, a shipload being brought over to sort of perpetuate uh, the English at Jamestown, Virginia. You could actually argue all three sort of uh, begin in that year 1619 or have some significance, I should say. Very interesting possibility. Well, the given that, that when people are studying the era, teaching the era, we naturally recognize that you have to expand beyond the period. But I can't think of a major book that does what you do, that, that looks at the Civil War in this context, not just Civil War and Reconstruction that we're familiar with, not just the approaching storm and then the war, which is, is a familiar approach, but to situate the war just in the center of, of these long-running trends. Uh, it, it's so obvious when you see it. You, you just slap yourself on the forehead and go, why didn't someone else think of that first? Uh, how did you think of it? Well, I... I have never accepted particularly the separation of Reconstruction from the Civil War. I think we've made a mistake in how we've bookended American history. And this is particular in our teaching. You were talking about the teaching. And, and so often, you know, I, I've lived my life now in the academy, and I love the University of Illinois and, and, and appreciate so much what it does as a land-grant school, reaching out to people. Uh, in, in a public service way, but particularly sometimes our teaching is more determined by what I would call more pragmatic uh, ways of organizing courses than they are in the way I think they make sense to people. And uh, I think Reconstruction has to be part and parcel of the Civil War. And I also, to get to your other, other uh, uh, point, I disagree with the time and at the end of what I see as Reconstruction. You know, historians have usually argued that Reconstruction ends with the withdrawal of federal troops and from the former Confederate states in 1877, but that's clearly not how people saw their lives at the time. And moreover, I think those gains of freedom that come about because of Lincoln during Reconstruction were not really legally undone until sanctioned by the Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1898, and particularly these former Confederate state constitutions of the 1890s, earliest 20th century. So I see that as, as very important. And, you know, it matters profoundly when we say a period history is said to begin and end as a professional historian's truism. I particularly think it's evident when discussing America's 19th century. So what I was trying to do was to blend all the strands of the 19th century history and present it as a piece. And then the age of Lincoln uses Abraham Lincoln as a fulcrum to put together the story of sectional conflict, 
Civil War and Reconstruction, and I would argue the formation of Lincoln's ideas before the Civil War and the context in which he formed these ideas, his leadership and development, he really did develop and change on his thinking during the Civil War, and then something we have not paid enough attention to, I think, how those ideas played out for both good and bad in the years following the Civil War into our own modern America, and I think that sets the sort of organization of the story. You know, we've been fascinated with the Civil War, and I think we will continue to be, but a state during the Civil War is the very existence of the United States. We all talk about it being the bloodiest history in our war, but the Civil War also posed in a crucial way what clearly became persistent themes in American history, I believe. The character of the nation, which I think everyone agrees on, but also the fate of African Americans. I really believe you can read large that fate of African Americans, be the place of minorities, how different sorts of people than the majority might fit into a democracy, almost the very meaning of pluralism itself. And consequently, I think scholars have been vitally interested in the Civil War, certainly out clues therein for the identity of America, but we might have actually been looking in the wrong place. If the identity of America is in the Civil War, I think the meaning of America and what we become and how we do things might be found in Reconstruction, and therefore I was trying to re-periodize, look at the chronology difference, say the Civil War cannot be separated from Reconstruction any more than the sectional conflicts and events that resulted in conflict can be separated from the war. I think that's a longer answer than you probably wanted, but that's sort of how I came up with it, Jerry, and why why I think it's important to think in those terms um, about the Civil War. It really does, with Reconstruction, set off our own current times. You can just follow it right through to the Civil Rights Movement to today. I I think that's a wonderful answer. The... the good point about how the practicalities affect things. What we're going to do now is take a short break. We'll come right back in just a moment and talk more with the author of The Age of Lincoln, Vernon Burton, here on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. History 1051 at East Carolina University ends in 1877. And History 1052 starts then. Has that shaped the way we think of the past? We'll talk about periods of history with Vernon Burton when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for 
events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Vernon Burton, author of The Age of Lincoln, uh, a subject we'll get back to in just a second. Before we do that, I want to send out, uh, I believe in the vernacular of the day, a shout out uh, to uh, Bob, one of our loyal listeners, who has sent me some very helpful files to, with an eye toward creating an alternate uh, informational website to help let you know more of what's been on the show and what's going to be on the show. And I owe Bob an apology for not having responded to his emails over the past week. But it is no exaggeration when I say that the past month has been the busiest uh, uh, professionally since Civil War Talk Radio went on the air uh, four and a half years ago, partly due to the Lincoln 200th uh, anniversary celebrations that have uh, uh, taken some time with public speaking partly due to internal events here at the uh, university, uh, partly self-inflicted as I uh, went to uh, play in a soccer tournament last weekend for the Greenville Stars over 50 team. Uh, I used to play on the over 40 team, or junior varsity as we call them, uh, but I turned 50 last October and now I can play for the over 50s. And it's much better being the youngest guy on the team. I can go right around those 60-year-olds right and left, whereas playing against 40-year-olds was, was insanely difficult and uh, impossible for somebody of my, my girth. So uh, we're uh, between uh, the travel, the soccer, the Lincoln anniversary, and all the things that go on here in the department, I have not had the opportunity to give the time I'd like to, uh, to the show and to those uh, files, but I want to assure Bob, who I know is listening, that uh, I'll be working with him, and I really appreciate his help. And I appreciate all you listeners. Uh, it was a pleasure while speaking in California to meet face-to-face with Civil War Talk listeners, uh, and I look forward to doing that at other places as we go. Well, in our first segment, we started talking about the age of Lincoln with Vernon Burton uh, of Coastal Carolina University and formerly of the University of Illinois. Um, Vernon, is it Coastal Carolina College or University? The University. University, big big time there. That's very important, um, uh, and has a, a good basketball team, as I recall. Uh, has, has gone to the uh, the tournament on occasion, the the NCAA tournament. Um, we don't do that here at ECU, but we do have a good football team now. Um, well, the you made the interesting point that that uh, the practicalities of how we study and teach history sometimes shape what we think about it. Uh, I think I got the numbers wrong. It's history 1050, the class I'm teaching this semester, that ends in 1877, and the second half of the U.S. history class starts in 1877 to the present. Many years ago, they used to break it off at 1865, but now there's been more history. Um, and, and Jerry, I hope yours is better than the years I taught in Illinois, where you know, often I do a class of 750 students with uh, 11 
or uh, 12 to 13 teaching assistants. I now have fewer students in my uh, Civil War class at Coastal than, in fact, I had at uh, as teaching assistants at Illinois, um, which is pretty amazing. But what always happened, I taught both halves of the survey, what seemed to always happen uh, was that at, we do a pretty good job explaining um, the coming of the Civil War because we know it came. But right. then we get to the Civil War and there was always one lecture. It would generally be why, because of the resources, the railroads, the number of people, the wealth, it was inevitable that the North was going to win. Or if you want to really be postmodern, perhaps talk about uh, race relations today, the food we enjoy, and uh, the music we like listening to and, and, and be postmodern about who really won. But just barely get a lecture in on the Civil War, and many times not even do a lecture on Reconstruction. That's and right. the second half would assume that people had had Reconstruction, and it's been left out. And yet I do not see how you can understand Civil War Reconstruction without putting them together. One of my favorite examples of this is the period in the time. I discovered people who rode under Confederate generals a decade after the Civil War in overthrowing uh, what was a legitimate interracial government uh, in Confederate states, uh, in South Carolina and Louisiana in particular, and they had not been part of the Civil War. They were too young to fought in the Civil War, and yet they then applied to the state's pension fund for Civil War veterans. Those soldiers, I guess they were not soldiers, I guess they were terrorists, and you want to think about it in the age of terror, uh, in terms of 9-11, uh, these People perceived and understood that they were still fighting the Civil War in 1878 and 1876. Well, they they did, and, and the periodization, uh, as you say, that prevents us from understanding that leaves that gap. The, the Reconstruction is also just a, a painful spot. We've got the the historiographical problem that uh, it was originally interpreted by uh, uh, Dunning and his acolytes and. Uh, uh the the i the image that comes down uh, even into the 60s and 70s uh, was sort of the gone with the wind birth of a nation uh bad north good south image of reconstruction yeah and in fact i think it's really interesting i think that the certainly historians i believe the general public have put on the back burner this myth that comes out of Gone with the Wind about the happy slave and the antebellum south with all the plantations, etc. I think that, that we've done a good job on that. The amazing thing is that Reconstruction, I think, is still coming and understood by the general public pretty much out of Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation still. And certainly, whereas when I went to graduate school at Princeton, and uh, study with Jim McPherson on the Civil War, uh, there wasn't even contingency given to the Civil War. At that time, people were, it's almost a romantic view of those white Southerners who fought against all odds. They couldn't have won, but somehow there was something heroic and struggling about. And then this little incident called Vietnam made us realize that under-resourced emerging nations or nations could, in fact, if they were dedicated, win. And now we understand there were many times in which the Confederates came very close to winning the war and could have won the Civil War, and yet no one seems to give contingency to Reconstruction. Everyone seems to assume that it could not have worked. I've argued very differently here, and particularly in local spots and things, and actually highlighted the success of interracial democracy on local levels where new grassroots alliance flourished. So I tried to reframe Reconstruction and ask, if Reconstruction was such a failure, why did Southern whites have to use terrorism, fraud, and violence 
to overthrow an interracial legal government. I, I wonder if we're moving into a new historiographical era where people are are starting to recognize and acknowledge that. Um, uh, this last month or so, I started reading uh, a book by my colleague here at ECU, uh, Charles Calhoun, uh, a book uh, called Conceiving the New Republic, uh, about the the Republican Party in the Reconstruction Era, political history of the the heirs of Charles Sumner, or Sumner himself, and then his, his successors after his death, trying to uh, create on, on a national political level this sort of multiracial uh, republic. And that doesn't fail until 1890 or even later. You, you mentioned Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, uh, there really was a possibility, uh, it seems to me. I really do think that there were lost opportunities, and somehow we've written that out of our history. You know, the, the, We're at the bicentennial of Lincoln, and it's very interesting. You look at the Lincoln Memorial, which comes about 10, 15 years later, uh, and and at that period of time, African Americans are completely written out of the history. It's all about the reconciliation of the two sections. It's about the nation and Lincoln preserving the nation. Nothing about at all about race. And I think we've now come to a period since the Civil Rights Movement of being focusing on race. So we have to look at and understand these questions differently. But if I can just just uh, go on, on two quick things, mm-hmm. um, asking these kind of questions, the idea. Well, this book actually came about because of the Ken Burns film, and I was in Washington, D.C. the year the Ken Burns film came out and thought it was pretty balanced, yeah, but it was interesting. Most people, the whites in the South, thought it was pro-North. Most seemed to me, Northerners thought it was pro-South. Personally, because my good friend Shelby Foote seemed to me to be the big star in it, and he certainly loved Nathan Bedford Forrest. I thought, if anything, it favored the South. However, in my home state of South Carolina, the Sons of the Confederacy called a boycott on South Carolina educational television because it had shown the film. They first wanted Ken Burns to come down and debate them. They said they would call off the boycott. Uh, and then they were trying to get somebody in South Carolina to, and apparently they could not. I had one good friend who would go unnamed who teaches in the state of South Carolina. They actually went outside of the city limits about nine yards and uh, drank a beer while he watched me debate the Sons of the Confederacy. He wouldn't have to lie and say he was out of town that day. But during that debate, over and over again, people kept saying that South Carolina had lost the Civil War. And finally I said, I don't understand it. You're acting as if South Carolina lost the Civil War. Now, of course, I was trying to be a little humorous, but I also had a point to make. You could have heard a pin drop. I said that a majority of the people in South Carolina did not want the Confederacy to win. That, in fact, a majority of the people in South Carolina were enslaved people. And they wanted the Confederate states to lose. You could say that the Confederate state or government of South Carolina lost the Civil War, but you couldn't say that South Carolina's people lost the Civil War. And it was amazing. There was a huge guy in his uniform caught on tape. He stands up. He throws back his fist. He starts down to me. He said, you insulted my ancestors. And I responded, well, you know, my ancestors were just as stupid as yours. And thank goodness he sat back down. But I, I got to thinking about it. This Asking questions differently, you know, the different. I think it's always important. I think every generation does need to interpret both Lincoln and the Civil War, and that was where I began thinking about doing this book in a different way and asking questions somewhat differently than we had normally asked them. If a majority of the people are in South Carolina not wanting the Confederacy to win, what does that say about the state of South Carolina? And have we written the history of the state of South Carolina or so much of the Confederacy? 
particularly downplaying the role that white Southerners and black Southerners played in the Union victory. Well, the, uh, you know, one of the ways you ask a different question, uh, tying in with this, uh, is, is your conception of Lincoln as a Southerner, uh, which interestingly uh, called to mind a very different approach taken by uh, Lerone Bennett, who argues that Lincoln was uh, not purely Southern, but, uh, but stresses his, his whiteness and uh, what Bennett perceives as his racial uh, animus. Uh, I don't find Lincoln filled with any kind of racial hostility, but uh, but it's not the Lincoln we're familiar with. Uh, what is it about Lincoln's? Where, where do you see Lincoln as a Southerner? Well, I see it as a cultural Southerner, and uh, I, I just spoke. I'm at the College of Charleston this moment, and uh, just just spoke really for the first time. They wanted me to talk about Lincoln as a Southerner, and, and uh, put together about a 50 minute lecture. I was using it as a way again of interpreting Lincoln, but I think there is great truth there. Lincoln's family had migrated from Virginia to Kentucky, like Henry Clay, Henry Clay's family, and then from Kentucky to southern Indiana and then southern uh, Illinois. And I think he was part of a great migration, this region of southern Ohio, southern Illinois, southern Indiana. All of Missouri needs to be looked at as a region and understanding this sort of group of cultural southerners. Two groups of people from the South, left the South to go there. And one group were like the Lincolns, Thomas Lincoln. Lincoln's father hated slavery and wanted to get away from slavery. I think a larger group actually hated African Americans and wanted to get away from African Americans. And that counts for the sort of racism in the context. Uh, And you have to understand that when you look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates or when you look at when Lincoln is appealing for votes and what he can say and what he does say. And I think that context is important. To just give you an example, Springfield, which is really in the middle of the state of Illinois, was Lincoln's adopted hometown that he most identified with. It was originally named Calhoun for John C. Calhoun, the South Carolina um, senator, vice president, statesman who's most identified with the pro-slavery argument. It just gives you some sense of this context. and. In particular, I go through all sorts of traits, everything from the food he liked to the women he loved to his adulation and spoiling of his children, which is very typical Southern, his uh, macho uh, and daring do in the wrestling match, the famous Jack Armstrong wrestling match, all these Southern characteristics. But I think nothing was... And the willingness to fight a duel. Yes, and Lincoln, who was on record for for uh, being against dueling, was willing to fight a duel and went all the way to the Mississippi River to do it, even though he was on record. This is the man who believes in the rule of law, is willing to fight the duel, he says, because of his honor. Once again, of course, typical Lincoln, uh, since he's the one challenged, he gets to choose the weapons, and he chooses uh, cavalry broadswords, which are huge and heavy, and he's a such a strong man. People forget how strong Lincoln was. He was a great athlete. He was fast, very fast, running races, and he also was strong. His father had worked him like a mule. He was strong as an ox. And so he practiced these broadsword hours, thinking that he could at least disarm James Shield, his Democratic opponent. Uh, and he knew if he'd have done guns, he said, it, the, the damn fool would have shot me. Uh, so it's typical Lincoln that way, but just to think how honor drove him. His best friend, I think most people agree, Joshua Speed was as close a friend as Lincoln ever had, even says that he married Mary Todd out of this sense of honor. I don't know 
how much you want to go there, but it clearly comes again. And, you know, when we talk about honor, it's more than just a good thing. Scholars, and particularly anthropologists, historians have argued that in the North, the society develops with a sense of dignity. That's an internal motivation, whereas honor has a lot of good attributes, but much of it is about the esteem of your community and what others think of you. And you can see it so clearly when Lincoln is again and again describing why the Civil War, when the YMCA, a young group from the Young Men's Christian Association, comes to Lincoln to argue with him, let the South go before we have war. Please, you know, don't don't take us into war. And Lincoln gives this quote that's often used, you know, there's no Washington in that, there's no Jackson in that. You know, where's the manhood and where is the honor? And again and again you can see those quotes on Lincoln. So I think there's something there about the culture of the yeoman of the South. And I think Lincoln's, I get criticized a lot because the major point that historians often make of Lincoln's big mistakes, he didn't know the South. Argue instead that Lincoln did know the South, but he knew that the South was more than these great plantations, that in fact there were many more Southerners, white Southerners, who were non-slave owners or had a very few slaves that represented the South, and that when he argued or believed that non-slave-owning Southerners would not fight to preserve slavery, uh, and this is a criticism that, of course, you have non-slave-owning whites fighting the Civil War, but people forget Lincoln defined the war by preserving the Union. Freeing the slaves only came much later as a war aim. And I know this much. Well, let's put it this way. I'm not sure we can say he was wrong. If he had defined the war about ending slavery, I'm not sure that, in fact, non-slave owners would have fought to preserve slavery. I am sure, though, absolutely certain that if he had done that to say that this war is about ending slavery, he could not have got a corporal's guard from the North to go down and fight a war to end slavery at the beginning. I think that's absolutely right. We're going to take another short break now on Civil War Talk Radio and be back in just a moment with our guest, Vernon Burton, on Civil War Talk Radio. When I was 12, my father was killed in an industrial accident at the vacant lot where he worked. My mother insisted I stay in the highway on-ramp to get an education. So she took a job uh, waiting tables at a parking garage to support us. She worked double shifts, and on her break, she would pick me up from the highway on-ramp and drop me off at the big office building, and I'd spend hours and hours just reading books. I remember every Saturday we'd have breakfast at the parking garage. And I'd tell her what I had read. And her eyes would just light up. <laughs> because she knew I'd end up in college, not working at the vacant lot, like my dad. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Hey, y'all. This is Stephen Cochran. As a country artist, I have traveled around this great country of ours, often meeting our brave men and women in uniform. And as a Marine and veteran of both the Iraq and Afghan conflict, I know how important it is to thank our troops who defend our freedom each and every day. One of the best ways to thank them is to give their children and spouses the gift of education. Scholarships for two years, four years, and vocational school. This is exactly what a national charity, Thanks USA, does. Please go to their website, www.thanksusa.org, 
to make a generous donation to the Thanks USA Scholarship Fund for the families of the troops, and I thank you. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Vernon Burton about his fascinating book, The Age of Lincoln, one that all of you will want to get a copy of and take a close look at. Um, While uh, doing that, to get information on future shows here on Civil War Talk Radio or learn about past shows, uh, we are hard at work with the assistance of... uh, 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 various listeners, uh, uh, particularly Bob in New York, who's been helping out uh, with a new website that will tell you what was on the shows. And you can go to that website even now. It's www.cwtr.org, Civil War Talk Radio, cwtr.org. Uh, the content is not filled in yet regarding the shows. We'll be getting to that uh, as over time. But uh, uh, thanks to Bob's efforts, there are handsome, uh, striking pictures of Abraham Lincoln and pictures of me, too, um, in different uh, recent years and long-ago years and uh, other interesting things there. So uh, it's it's just uh, in skeletal form we're getting to it, but the website's coming to life, and I'm very appreciative uh, for Bob's efforts in doing that. Well, Vernon, this... this uh, there's so much about the age of Lincoln, there's so many different directions to take in discussing it, one hardly knows where to go, but one that really strikes me as critical is your interpretation of the, uh, of what, uh, maybe it's too pejorative to say, what goes wrong with America, um, but l- let me put it this way, some listeners will be familiar with a, a, a really intriguing and original book on Lincoln by Gabor Borat called Abraham Lincoln and the Economics of the American Dream, in which he analyzes Lincoln's economic views, uh, which in a nutshell stress uh, equality of opportunity and the chance to be a self-made man, as Lincoln himself was. He goes from the log cabin to learning the law to success in politics. The problem, as uh, anyone who looks at history knows, is that that model isn't going to work in the post uh, Civil War era in the industrial era. Uh, Lincoln's model is one year you work for others, the next year you work for yourself, the next year you have enough money to hire others to work for you. That works for the individual yeoman farmer, but it doesn't work if you're working for Andrew Carnegie. You're not going to build your own steel mill next year, or ever. You're never going to get out. Um, what went wrong? Well, it's, it's such a fascinating question. Uh, and it's something we haven't looked at, too. And, you know, where would Lincoln have come out on this? I think it's very tough. I think Gabor is absolutely right. This is a bedrock of, along with the rule of law, is Lincoln's belief in equality of opportunity. I know what I'd like to think. But also, during the Civil War, Lincoln uh, used the captains of industry to help win that war. And, you know, I think thought that, as usual, people deserve to be rewarded who had worked to win the war. Uh, you had mentioned um, earlier about the, the horrible economic crisis we're in. And it's, uh, part of that, I actually believe, is our own having been involved in war and how we pay or didn't pay for the war. The southern states, the Confederacy, was convinced that 
the Union would not go to war, or if they did, they couldn't uh, go very long because it would bankrupt them, particularly with the South gone and the cotton uh, that drove so much of the economy. And it is to Lincoln's genius. Now, don't misunderstand me. Lincoln personally did not make money out of the Civil War, but through the income tax and other methods of doing things in tariffs and uh, the way he handled the finances of the war and had others help him, of course, with it, he actually made money on the Civil War, which really makes a difference in terms of the economics uh, down the line, I think. Um, and part of the way he did that was having the railroads uh, do things to help him and, and build the railroads. And uh, that was the sort of, as the computer industry becomes our sort of uh, technology giant of the day, that was the sort of model for what would be industries uh, in the um, uh, post-Civil War era. Then these people got rewarded for that, and I think that helped spur off the capitalism. I'd like to think if Lincoln had lived, he would not have allowed those abuses to go. But if you compare, I mean, there are a lot of comparisons between the age of Lincoln from the religious fanaticism, the period I call millennium, to our own religious fanaticism, whether it's just people flying jets into planes or our own you know, domestic and foreign policy that we've had. Uh, but, but one of the extreme comparison is the extremes of wealth. The period that we think of as the Gilded Age, and particularly following the Civil War, in particular our own age, has seen one of the most extremes of wealth, where there's so many more rich people and so few, I mean, so many more uh, poor people, and there's just n- nothing much uh, in between. And I think that's just part of those comparisons that resulted from the inequality that resulted during the Civil War. And this was a concern before the Civil War. It's something that concerned Lincoln. Lincoln read his history, as did most people then. And they had realized that any time that a republic or something like a democracy had been founded, that as it became more wealthy and people became wealthy, that it seemed to decay or fall apart. They become selfish. And the idea of a citizen and a virtuous citizenship took back burner. So people were worried about this before the Civil War. Uh, and uh, you can just see it in the newspapers, and they actually think in the North as, as well, that going to war would bring people back to being good citizens and not just chasing unfettered capitalism. So I think it's a complex question, uh, and it's one that we really have to struggle with. If this war was about equality and opportunity, then what really, really happened? Another parallel I think is worth thinking about is in, during the age of Lincoln, we were moving, as you just explained, from an agrarian society of farmers to a manufacturing society where people no longer worked for themselves or had the opportunity to become an independent householder uh, working for themselves, whether as an artisan or as a farmer. And today we're moving, in fact, from that manufacturing uh, economy into a knowledge-based economy in both both periods, people are being left behind, and yet some people are making great fortunes uh, at the same time. The the another, I don't know if it's maybe a parallel or not. You mentioned religion. Uh, I was struck by your observation that one of the things that holds this sort of unfettered capitalism in check before the Civil War is the 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 strong and widespread religious belief. The Second Great Awakening is swept through the country by 1840 and. Uh, the organized religion is very powerful, but the war, uh, you argue, uh, uh, cripples religion in both the North and the South. Uh, explain that. 
Well, there's a theological crisis for North and South, and we sort of explained the North because uh, you can see it, as I said, in the in the Chicago paper, the New York paper, saying you know this war is going to be good, it's going to bring back people to what our government's all about, about the founding principles, and they'll be good citizens and not just chasing wealth and one out for themselves. And of course, that doesn't happen. The psychological, the the, the death the uh, psychological and emotional strain, let alone the actual cost of what war is all about, the vacant chair of so many people who lost it, really brings about a theological crisis in the North, in the South. And I don't want to distinguish between this, because I think historians have been wrong when they say both North and South faced a theological crisis. Southern whites, of course, had argued that God was on their side, and they had all the identifications, identification with, you know, whether they were Israel or they were David fighting Goliath, that God would, as a Christian nation, would show them the way. I don't think they had paid attention to the verse in Matthew about you should count the cost, that when you have, in fact, uh, uh, an army of 10,000 your size going out to fight to have been a religious supposedly a group of people. They hadn't read their Bible that carefully. But, of course, God, they do not win, so that's a theological right. But one group of people who actually shared the theology of Lincoln, you know, I argue in the book that Lincoln's not only the greatest president, but the greatest theologian of the 19th century. Everyone else was sure they understood God's will. In fact, many thought they were doing God's will, and that's one of the things that happened. When you think you're doing God's will, you're not likely to compromise. It was very much similar to the cultural wars we face today and we see in our politics. Lincoln, however, knew that one does not know God's will, and you can see it with his use of subjective. Even when the war is basically over, he says, if it is God's will. And I think he really read the Bible as Jews read the Old Testament and supposed to the... the uh, uh, Protestant, dominant Protestant, following the Great Awakening, one-on-one relationship with God, as Lincoln read it as a corporate theology, as a corporate relationship with God. God working out his will through his people in history, which, in fact, ironically, is the theology of African Americans. And the Civil War was not a theological crisis for African Americans in the South, former slaves, but in fact it was the coming of the millennium. It was the Pharaohs being paid back for their cruelty, in fact, to God's people, particularly those early years of Reconstruction. And uh, I think religion loses much of its stature during this period. I mean, there are hints of it. When when Teddy Roosevelt, you know, is running uh, for office of the Bull Moose, he sort of does a millennium standing in Armageddon call, but I think it basically ends, and I argue that it probably ends as much with the populist in 1896, that third-party movement that still, like Lincoln, believed that you could have the average person understand and make decisions and belief in government and also the last party until the modern civil rights movement to really stand for some rights for African Americans when it sort of fetches up on the rocks of fusion with the Democrats in 1896. I see that as maybe the last sort of millennial-infused, uh, broad-based uh, party, reform party, although Teddy Roosevelt with, with his Bull Moose Party does have some of that later. Now, if, if and this is a question uh, I'm sure you hear all the time, uh, and it's always a, a challenge. If Lincoln had not been assassinated, could his individual ability have withstood the, these big systemic changes you're talking about? 
certainly in race relations, I think so, Gerald. And I, I do a lot of uh, expert witness testimony for minority plaintiffs, and uh, there's something called a totality of circumstances case. And I really think I can make a very strong one that Lincoln, uh, though it's often been argued otherwise, with his bedrock belief in the rule of law would not have allowed the abuses that happened in the South, basically a coup d'etat to overthrow, and that with the popularity he had gained to become Father Abraham would have had the gravitas to have taken it through. Plus, as you know, he was such a skilled politician. He was amazing as a politician. I believe very much that he was always leading the nation with the Emancipation Proclamation, why he does not answer Greeley, the famous letter that when you mentioned forced into glory by Lerone Bennett quotes and says, here Lincoln is, writes back and says that he will free the slaves if that would win the war and preserve the Union, would not free them if it, if it would preserve the Union or do you know some of each if it would, and points out that this is Lincoln doesn't care about uh, race and slavery, uh, but it's only the war. At the same time, Lincoln has already written the Emancipation Proclamation. He's already announced he's going to, to his cabinet, he's going to announce he's convinced to wait to uh, an appropriate time. It doesn't look like desperation. But why didn't Lincoln write back and say, you're right, Greeley, uh, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Instead, I think he's using the newspapers to bring the country to where he is. Uh, and emancipation. At the end of his life, I think he's doing exactly the same thing with uh, black citizenship and black voting rights. And this is when, in fact, I would argue that uh, Booth is not a crazy man, but he hears Lincoln very clearly. And he turns to his friend. He says, he's talking about, and he uses uh, a word we wouldn't want to use, the N-word, but it's basically black citizenship. He's not wrong. You can look at what Lincoln's doing everywhere, already talking about blessing. And remember, Lincoln is assassinated not for the 13th Amendment, but because he called for limited but black suffrage, the black vote. He did, that's he did why that Booth indeed. Kills him. He's a martyr to, in fact, uh, voting rights in many ways. And, uh, Vernon, I'm sorry to say we're reached the end of our hour sooner than I'd want to. It happens every week, but especially this week. Um, listeners, you will not want to miss The Age of Lincoln by Vernon Burton. And they can look at the website, ageoflincoln.com, Jerry. There's sections of the book there, a lot of other things. They're There's more so than much, welcome. And, you know, that's and right. Email that's me directly if they have questions. Uh, you can email on the website, and it will get to me, and I'll answer eventually. Ageoflincoln.com or theageoflincoln.com. Ageoflincoln.com. The, the footnotes are on the website. It's a unique book in so many ways. We're out of time. Listeners, thank you for listening. Vernon, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Jerry. I always enjoy talking with you. I really do and learn a lot. And listeners, we'll see you next week on Civil War Talk Radio. Music.